So let's pray. O most loving Father, who willest us to give thanks for all things, to dread nothing but the loss of thee, and to cast all our care on thee who carest for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which thou hast manifested unto us in thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, for the past um, three weeks, we have been looking at several questions. The way that this course is devised, we've actually finished the first third of the course. We're about to move into the second third of the course. The way that the course is divided is into these three thirds, Christian beginnings, Christian beliefs, and then Christian behavior. In terms of Christian beginnings, that's where we've been. We've looked at three very important questions, um, namely, how do you become a Christian? Um, how can you be sure that you're a Christian? How can you grow as a Christian? And today we're going to move into that second major section um, that, again, deals with, with our beliefs, what, what we know to be true as Christians. That is what we know to be true about God the Father. What do we know to be true about God the Son? What do we know to be true about God the Holy Spirit? What has God told us about himself? And we're going to begin today um, with what we know to be true about God the Father. We actually won't get into the nitty-gritty of God the Father because we're going to take a little bit of a step back and, and talk about what it means to have a belief in God. And how do we express that as Christians? And why is that important? Especially as we move out into a world that doesn't believe. Now let me ask you all a question. If someone said to you, look, I didn't grow up in the church, I don't know anything about Christianity... How do I, where, where could I go to learn about who God is and what his purposes and his plans are? What book could we hand them that would tell them who God is? The Bible. The Bible. All right. You hand them a Bible. But let's say this person said to you, well, actually, I'm, I'm about to pick up my, my Ubers about five minutes away. Um, I don't have time to read this whole Bible thing. Could you just, could you boil it down? Could you, could you give me something a little more succinct? So the Bible is the expanded. What could we hand them? that would express to them, this is what we believe. This is what we know to be true about God. Okay, you said the Apostles' Creed, Danny. Yes, and, and more broadly, we could hand them any one of the creeds. They're, the Apostles is, is one of them, but yes, one of the creeds. Um, the word creed comes from the Latin credo, meaning I believe. And in our tradition, we have two creeds that we use in worship that express this is what we know to be true about God. Danny mentioned the first one, the Apostles' Creed. Does anyone know the other one is? The Nicene Creed. Very good. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Here they are up here. Obviously too small for you to read. But the vast majority of Christians around the world would say, yes, this expresses what we know to be true about God. There are some branches of the Christian family tree that get a little bit nervous about creeds. Um, and, and I can kind of get it. I mean, they, they might, might say something like, well, we have no creed but the Bible. And again, I, I get that. And I can you know, sympathize with that. But at the end of the day, it is helpful to be able to hand to someone or to express to someone or to remind ourselves in a succinct way of what we know to be true about God. 
And that's the purpose of, of the creed. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Now, what I've done in your field guide, if you go to the very back, is I've photocopied some of the pages um, that come out of the Book of Common Prayer. And I think the first one that shows up is page 66. Now, you don't flip 66 pages to get there, but 66 will show you the Apostles' Creed. Turn the page over, and holy cow, you're now at page 326, and you got the Nicene Creed. Want to talk about these? Just get us oriented to these creeds and, and then dive in to say more about them. Now, if you notice here on page 326, the Nicene Creed begins here. But then over on 327, we see it appears to begin a second time. Now, look at those two creeds. What's different about the two? And, and, and here's a hint. It's the first word. Say, why do you say that, Stephanie? Yes. We, because we. Yes. The eyes for personal worship. Exa- yes, exactly. So, so they both express something that's true. We, this is what we as a community know to be true about God. But then the I form of the creed is a, a simply a way of saying, not only do we, but I, Andrew O'Dell, I know this to be true. I believe this to be true. Different worshiping communities, some of them use the we form, some of them use the I form. Here at St. Philip's, we tend to use the I form, but it's the same creed expressed just um, either on behalf of the community or on behalf of, of the individual. Flip back and forth between the two, between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and, and just without even reading them, just, just glancing at them. And actually, it might be easier to, to see here. What, what is the major difference between the two? Again, without even reading anything. The, the length, yes. The Nicene Creed is much longer. The Nicene Creed is is later, and it's answering questions that the Apostles' Creed does not answer. In particular, it's answering the question, how is Jesus related to God the Father and related to God the Holy Spirit? Like, like, how how, how do do they relate to each other? We're going to dive more into that uh, during today's class, but that's what the Nicene Creed is getting at. It tells us about that relationship. Now, the Apostles' Creed is named as such not because it was written by the Apostles, although sometimes there's a a little bit of a tradition about that, but really it's it's the Apostles' Creed because it expresses the faith of the Apostles. It is a succinct summary of the faith, faith of the Apostles. The Nicene Creed is named for the Council of Nicaea that met in 325 A.D., And they wrote an earlier form of the creed, but this version that we have here was written several decades later, I think it was 380 or so, where this one was finalized that we use in in our worship um, on Sunday mornings. Both of these creeds, which are incredibly important to us, both of them assume the existence of God. In other words, they're not making a case, this is why we know that there is a God. They just assume because we know there is a God, this is what that God is like. We Christians accept the existence of God as a matter of faith rather than proof. That does not mean that our faith is irrational or that it's unreasonable or that it's anti-intellectual. In fact, we spent a good bit of time last week talking about the importance of needing to grow in knowledge, you know, engaging your brain to think about what it is that you believe in, to understand it, to understand who God is. But, but even so, there is an element of faith. But I want you all to recognize and understand that there is equally 
a leap of faith for the atheist. Atheism is no less or no more a leap of faith than is Christianity. And and the reason I want you to understand this is because we are living in a world where there's a growing um, tenacity to a a kind of atheism that's a a bit more um, aggressive, I, I would say, and sometimes atheists will try to bully you into saying, well, you're being unreasonable for, for believing we're not being unreasonable. Well, no, both require an equal leap of faith. There is no open and shut case for the existence of God or the non-existence of God. Furthermore, um, living as we do in an age that values science, and I actually have a great love for science, my background's in science, so I love science. But because we live in a scientific age, an unbelieving age, there is this idea that somehow science makes it so that we don't need God. But the reality is there's no test tube, there's no beaker, there's no mass spectrometer, there's no, well, any scientific instrument you can use to prove or disprove the existence of God. So those who say, because science, therefore we don't need God, are, are mixing categories. They're mixing categories. And I want you to be aware of that. I want you to be able, because um, we all have um, friends, coworkers, some of you have children, some of you have grandchildren, nieces, nephews, who are going to ask these questions because they're living in a society that's pushing back against Christianity. And we need to be able to say, no, this is, this is why we believe. Now, even though, as I said, um, our, our belief does require uh, faith in the same way that atheism is a, is a kind of faith, as a kind of leap of faith, and while there's no open and shut proof for the existence of God, John Stott, in his book, does provide for us several, at least some lines of thought that we can use to say, well, okay, there's no open and shut case, but here's some reasons why I believe in God, why I think it's rational and reasonable to believe in the Lord. And I just want to run through those quickly, again, for you to have those in your back pocket in case you encounter a coworker, uh, again, a child, a grandchild, niece or nephew, who wants to know, well, why do you believe in God? These are some reasons that we Christians would point to. First of all is the fact of the universe itself. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote this, and I'll just read it for you. We'll be turning to some passages later, but let me just read this out. Uh, Paul wrote this, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? in the things that have been made. That is, from the teeniest, tiniest little fruit fly all the way up to a universe that seems finely tuned for life. All of these things cry out for a creator. They don't prove a creator, but they certainly beg for one. The second is... um, well, before, actually, before I move on to the second, let me, let me say this. Um, Stott uses the wonderful example of this is this man in a wig. This is Sir Christopher Wren. Sir Christopher Wren was the brilliant architect who designed um, this building here, St. Paul's in London. If you ever go there, you should visit it. It's, it's an extraordinary building. Now, if you go inside and walk around this great church, there's some monuments on the wall, like we have here at St. Philip. There's some monuments for those saints who've gone by, who've maybe played some special role within the community. But look, you can look everywhere you want to look. You will not find a monument up there on the first main floor to Sir Christopher Wren. There's not one there, which might seem a little strange. I mean, the man did design the building. He was brilliant. But Sir Christopher Wren is actually buried down below in the crypt. 
And if you go down to the crypt where Sir Christopher Wren is buried, there's his name there, where his remains are, and there is this Latin inscription. Lector si monumentum requiris circumspice. That is, reader, if you are looking for his monument, look around you. That is, the building is the monument to Sir Christopher Wren, to the genius that God had given him. Where do we look for the monument, for the existence of God? The universe, all creation, cries out for a creator. The second line of thought that John Stott offers is the nature of human beings. We humans possess this universal sense of, of God, of goodness, of beauty, of right and wrong. Where does that come from? It's very difficult to account for those things if all you got in your toolbox is just a naturalistic explanation of the world. In other words, if you rule God out, it's very difficult to explain how did you get this? These creatures who see beauty, who have a strong sense of goodness, of right and wrong, where did that come from? The third line of thought that Stott offers is the person of Jesus himself. Now, we're going to talk about God the Son in great detail in two weeks. But at this point, I would say this. If, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with an open heart and an open mind, what you will discover is the infinite God within a person. The infinite God in a person. Why do we believe in God? We believe in, well, because Jesus would be part of our answer. So those are three lines of thought that, again, if someone said to you, why do you believe in God? Now, you might have your own reasons, your own story. But if you're dealing with someone who's, you know, who some of us operate up here in the brain, you know, we want to know reasons and rationales and logic. Well, th this is kind of some places that you could begin to have that conversation. But once you acknowledge the existence of God, in other words, once you say, well, okay, yes, I believe there is a God, this God exists, well, then the next question is, well, what is this God like? What's his nature? How does he interact with us? And as for us as Christians, well, we are, we are believers in a triune God. So I want to talk about um, the Trinity and before we talk about the individual members of the Trinity, who are? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Y'all are kind of timid. Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Before we talk about them individually, I want to give us a bird's eye view of the Trinity itself. One of the great mysteries, uh, profound mysteries of the Christian faith. Now, as we talked about earlier, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are divided up. Um, actually, we may not have pointed that out. They're divided up into three paragraphs. And those three paragraphs correspond to what? Believe, well, what we believe about the Father, what we believe about the Son, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what those three paragraphs are. I meant to point that out, I didn't do that. Um, and that's again, because we believe in a triune God. Now this word Trinity is actually a contraction of two, two words, tri meaning three and unity meaning one. This is because God is three in one. As I said, this is perhaps one of the greatest and most profound mysteries of the Christian faith. And yet, 
it's a mystery that if you will begin to plummet as a Christian, you know, to, 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 to go to the depths of it, to ponder it, um, it can bring great encouragement, great encouragement, as I hope will unfold as we, um, as we talk about the Trinity. Turn with me um, in your field guide to page 867. And this, again, is a photocopy of the back of our Book of Common Prayer. And we've got some paragraphs here, but if you skip down on 867, there are the Articles of Religion. If, if you wanted to tell something about what we believe about God, and, and this is somebody that you could walk with for a long time, you want to hand them a Bible. This is someone who you're talking to on the corner and they're about to pick up an Uber. You could hand them the creed. The 39 articles are kind of somewhere in between. They're longer than the creeds. They're more expansive than the creeds. They talk about some things that the creeds don't talk about, but they're not obviously as expansive as the Bible itself. But these are what we Anglicans, these are 39 articles, 39 statements about what we know to be true about God. And some of them are are kind of distinct to the Anglican church, although many uh, churches of the Reformation would would have um, very similar statements. But the first article, what, what does it have to do with down there? What's it about? The Holy Trinity. What, what do we believe about this crazy mystery of the Holy Trinity? So let, let's read it and see what, what we believe or what we know to be true. There is but one living and true God, everlasting without body, parts, or passions. Let me pause there. Um, the 39 articles are written in, in Elizabethan English. And um, that word passions there in this context refers to, think about um, if you studied the Greek gods in, in middle school or high school, you know, Zeus and Poseidon and all of them. If you remember, they are very uh, arbitrary. You know, Zeus would just be having a bad day and he's going to throw down um, a lightning bolt. You know, Poseidon's, you know, he got jealous over someone and you know, he's going to capsize their boat. I mean, they're very uh, capricious. Um, they're um, petty. Uh, that's the way that the Greek gods are. They're impulsive. But, but our God's not like that. So he didn't have whims. So that's what, that's what that word passion there means. He's not just going to go do something willy-nilly. He's of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. The maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons. Of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this word Trinity, it actually never appears in the Bible as a word. And the doctrine of the Trinity was not fully fleshed out until about the third or the fourth century. So one might well ask, well, where does this come from? And there are some um, Christian sects, S-E-C-T-S, um, that would look at this idea of the Trinity and say, no, wait a second, what, what, what's going on with the Trinity? But even though the word Trinity as a word never appears in the Bible, the, the Bible is Trinitarian through and through. And I'm going to take you all through a little, um, we're going to take a, a run through four passages of the Bible um, so that you can see for yourself that the Bible is Trinitarian. Actually, we're going to look at four areas that are sources for the Trinity. The New Testament history, theology, and experience. But let's start with the New Testament. 
But let's, let's look at four passages real quickly. We're going to look at, um, start with Matthew chapter 3. This passage depicts the baptism of Jesus. Now we have a couple of scenes, a couple of uh, uh, historic accounts of Jesus' life when he was younger. You know, of course, we have his birth. We've got a teenage story. Uh, but we don't know a whole lot about before this moment. This is when Jesus arrives on the scene at his baptism. This is when he begins his public ministry. So let's, let's see who we see here. Um, at, and, and the painting here, for those who can see it, you've got Jesus there um, in the center. And then John the Baptist. Uh, this is John the Baptist here who's baptizing Jesus. So that's who those people are. And uh, here are some onlookers. Um, okay. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what are the characters in this scene? Who shows up? Jesus, John, so Jesus, the son, John, who else? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Robert, the father, the voice of the father. They're all there. The whole gang's there. The voice of the Father, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and the Son, Jesus, there in the water. Okay? All right, we're going to go from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end. To the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 16. Just to set this up, Jesus, um, he has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. And he is preparing to ascend to the Father. But before he ascends to the Father, he gathers his crew around and he gives them their marching orders. He gives them their mission. And so let's see what he says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Now remember that for later, the fact that the disciples worshiped Jesus. That's gonna be key in, uh, for later on. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Trinity. Okay? But wait, there's more. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll see a Trinitarian greeting where Peter writes this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, my, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, one more. So that's a Trinitarian greeting. Let's look at a Trinitarian um, farewell, a blessing. Second Corinthians chapter 13. This 
little benediction should sound very familiar. We will hear it in worship um, in, uh, today after morning prayer. What you'll discover, the more you read of God's word and the more you listen to the prayers that come out of our prayer book, the more you realize the prayer book is just, it, it plagiarizes the Bible. I mean, it's basically just cut and paste a piece of the Bible and we pray it. I mean, that's essentially what the prayer book is with a few things mixed in. But uh, here's the final greeting. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Here we go. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we'll say evermore. Uh, Amen. So, the New Testament is Trinitarian through and through. But our understanding of the Trinity, it also arises from history. Think about this. Uh, Jesus' 12 apostles. What, what religion were they? They were Jews. They were Jewish men, right? And, and going back to whatever studies you might have had about um, the, the pagans, so those, you know, the, you got the Roman gods and, and the Greek gods and so on. Um, what was the major difference just at a bird's eye view between the Jewish belief about God and the pagan belief. One God. That's key. Every Jewish young boy, every day when he got up and before he went to bed, would recite what's known as the Shema, this section of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, some pagans would, just to, to deride both the Christians, uh, but especially the Jewish people, would say they're atheists. They only have one God. Something's wrong with them. So that's one of the major differences. So what we're talking about here are these 12 apostles. They've, day in and day out, ever since they could speak, Jesus' 12 apostles have, have been greeting every day with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then they met Jesus. Now they became convinced he was the Messiah. That's okay. So far, so good. But then they realized he was something more than just the Messiah. More than just a great man sent by God. Why? Well, Jesus forgave sins. But every Jewish man, or every Jewish person, knows that only God can forgive sins. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the world. Though God is the judge of the world. In fact, it's that claim that Jesus made, that I will come to judge the world. That's what got him brought up on charges for blasphemy. They knew that only God could claim to judge the world. The disciples realized that Jesus was worthy of their worship. I mean, that's what we saw. I said, remember this for later when we were reading the the end of Matthew's uh, gospel, gospel according to Matthew. Jesus is praying to ascend to the Father. He went to the mountaintop. The disciples gathered around. And what did they do? They worship Jesus. Now, if there is one thing that a Jewish person understands is you don't worship anyone or anything but the living God. So if they're worshiping Jesus, what does that say about their belief, about who he is? He's God. Now, it was clear that Jesus was not the Father because he spoke to the Father. He prayed to the Father. And then later, Jesus told them about somebody else, this comforter, the spirit of truth that he was going to send to them. 
the one whom we call the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, which is an old-fashioned way of saying Holy Spirit. The one who was poured down on the disciples on the Feast of Pentecost. So all this is to say is that the disciples' observation of Jesus, it compelled them to believe in the Trinity. The, the facts of history left them with no other alternative. But we add to this the study of theology. That, that is the study of God. Which reveals that our God is a triune God. The early church fathers, they're pictured here in this um, Greek icon. That's that style of painting that the Eastern church uses. So Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, they use these icons. Um, this is a, de- a depiction of the church fathers. Church fathers is a, is a way of talking about those church leaders who came after the 12 apostles. So the 12 apostles, obviously Judas hanged himself. They replaced Judas. The 12 apostles had a ministry, but eventually they were, most of them martyred, but they all died. So who took over the leadership after them? That would be the church fathers. So this is sort of that next generation of leadership. And they began to ponder all of this. They wrestled with this question. How do we reconcile the unity of God, that is God is one, not up for debate, with the deity of Jesus, because after all, what did the disciples do? They worshiped him but also the distinctiveness of Jesus. In other words, clearly Jesus is not the Father. So how do we, how do we put all this stuff together? How, how do we work this out? Can you all see the problem? How, how do we say that Jesus is divine and distinct from the Father without committing ourselves to two gods? <laughs> We've got a problem with the mat. Well, the unity of God is the starting point. We are monotheists. Again, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then what do we do about Jesus? Well, some said, okay, Jesus was divine. But in order to maintain one God, maybe, maybe it's that we've got this one God and he's just operating in different modes like, and sometimes he's sort of operating in the son mode. Maybe he's operating here in the father mode. Maybe here he's operating in the spirit mode. Not unlike like the fact that I have different modes in my own life. I'm a husband to Ellen. I'm a father to Andrew and Lillian. I'm a brother to Robert. So, so maybe that's it's just one God operating different modes. <clears throat> but this doesn't actually resolve our problem. In fact, what I'm describing here is a great heresy of the church name known as modalism. Um, The problem is that it denies that Jesus is distinct from the Father. In other words, if we just have one God operating in a bunch of different modes, then who is that talking at the baptism? You're my well-beloved son. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, what's what's going on there? Who's Jesus talking to? So that's the problem of modalism, also known as Sabellianism, um, for one of its uh, proponents, Sabellius. So clearly, this doesn't resolve the, the unity, deity, distinctiveness problem that we're trying to resolve. Well, others said, okay, maybe, maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe the way to understand this is, is that Jesus wasn't fully divine. He, he was... He was He's more than a regular human, not quite God. Maybe he's like a sort of a superhuman, you know, kind of like um, Superman or Gandalf the wizard, you know, more than, than the regular people, but not quite God. That way we can 
we can fix the God is one problem. This keeps Jesus distinct from God the Father, and it allows us to maintain our belief that God is one. But this is also a heresy known as Arianism, named for Arius, a powerful bishop of the fourth century who championed this idea. Um, Arius was ultimately defeated by another bishop, um, Athanasius or Athanasios, um, same person, different pronunciation, who said in so many words, okay, if Jesus is just a superhuman creation of the Father, then what are the disciples doing worshiping him? How are you going to explain that, Arius? Arius is like, I don't know. It's blasphemy to worship anyone or anything other than God. And more than that, how is Jesus supposed to forgive sins if he's not God? How is he going to help us? Only God can forgive sins. How can he be the judge of the world if he's merely a creation of God rather than being God himself? Now, Technically speaking, in modern, sort of modern um, uh, um, expressions of Arianism, um, Jehovah's Witness sort of tend to be kind of tend in the Arian kind of direction. Um, Unitarians, some Unitarians would be modern day um, Arians. They'd say, you know, Jesus was a great man. He was more than most of us, more holy than most of us, but not quite God. In some sense, you could sort of think of, of Islam as a kind of Arianism in the sense that Islam does actually have great reverence for Jesus. Um, Jesus shows up in the Quran, but, but he is clearly, he, he is a great prophet, but he's not God. So in a sense, you could think of, of Islam as, as a kind of modern day um, Arianism, at least in the perspective of how they view who Jesus is. Well, all of this brought uh, the church fathers to arrive at what has become the classic understanding of the Trinity. And that's this. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Which gets us back to what Stephanie pointed out. You, you, can, you can send your prayers to any of the three and they'll get routed um, to the Godhead. You don't have to, <laughs> have to worry about that. Pause for questions. Yes, Ashley. One of the Mormons, I know the Mormons don't believe in the Trinity. I just forget what they do. You know, I, Ashley, that's one of those things. Someone will ask the question, I'll go and read and study up, and then about a month later, it just, yeah, I, I, so I don't know the, the depth, but I, yeah, there is, there does seem to be something about their understanding of Jesus. It's a little wonky in terms of the divinity of Jesus. Yeah. They said he's a son of God. A son of God. So we would say, you know, I'll often talk about the Christian family tree and branches of the Christian family tree. Um, we would say that, that Mormonism, we would identify as, a, as a, not a denomination, not really a sect, S-E-C-T. Uh, do you know the difference between a denomination, a sect, and a cult? Do you know? We call you a denomination if we like you and we like your religion. We call you a sect if we like you, but we don't like your religion, and we call you a cult if we don't like you and we don't like your religion. <laughs> so that's the difference. The Mormons say that essentially Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus wasn't enough. So they had to do other things. So Something has Jesus, to be added to it. Yeah. Kind of, um, and, and I guess our, sort of the classic answer for us would be Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. Right. 
it is accomplished. Hallelujah. Nothing to be added. Um, but, but a life given in gratitude. And, and yes, that's great. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, okay, so the last thing, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity has also arisen out of the experience of believers. And this is actually where I'm going to pick up on something that Stephanie was pointing out earlier. You know, I acknowledge the Trinity is, it, it's, it's not understandable in the way that algebra is understandable. It is one of the great mysteries of the church. And yet, I would encourage you to press to press in, to, to, to think about it, um, especially as you pray. The, the classic Christian prayer, again, you can pray to the Father, pray to the Son, pray to the Holy Spirit. Don't, there's nothing to worry about. But, but Christian sort of classically, the classic form of prayer has classically been to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father, through the Son, who gives us access to the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of our colics, again, that's a fancy word, church word for our prayers that collect our thoughts. A lot of our colics will follow this kind of formula. So here's an example. Heavenly Father, prayer to the Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts. I mean, I can't even pray without, I need your spirit to empower my prayers. Send your Holy Spirit in our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error and to lead us into all truth. How? How can I bring this prayer to you? Through Jesus Christ, whose blood gave me access to your throne room so that I can come and cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Amen. Likewise, you, you could also think of um, the Lord's Prayer as a Trinitarian prayer. It's, a, it's, it's our Heavenly Father who gives us our daily bread, it was Jesus Christ who died on the sin and enables us to receive, died on the cross and, and enabled us to receive God's forgiveness for our sins. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads us out of temptation um, and by his power delivering us from evil. So this is how Christians experience the Trinity. We, we, we experience it every time we worship to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, at the end of the day, some people still ask, well, you know, so what? I mean, this is a lot of head knowledge. I, I, I do want you to understand what it is that we believe, but so what? And here, here's what I would say um, for the hard part. God is a community of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every single one of us, even those of us who are introverts, even those of us who are happy being all by ourselves, all of us want to connect and belong, all of us. And through Jesus' death on the cross, we are being invited into the most wonderful community in the universe, the community of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're part of that, that community between those three. And God has made a way for you to be in that community. Um, there's that you know, great Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock, I am an island. Well, no Christian is an island. No Christian is an island. Paul's there for questions. Okay, I think we've probably gone as far as we need to go. I, um, I might send you all a silly video, just a goofy video about, um, about the heresies of the church. If you want to watch it, watch it. If you don't, don't. But let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the gift of this time that we have together um, as your sons and daughters. 
thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, Lord, through your apostles' experience with your son. And more than this, Lord, thank you that not only have you revealed yourself, but that you have invited us into the holy fellowship that you have had for all time, before time, the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray your blessing on these, your sons and daughters, that as we go our separate ways, as we go back into our homes, um, back into our communities, back into our workplaces, Lord, that you would give us the grace to carry your spirit with us, that those who do not yet know you might be drawn into relationship with you through us. For we ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, go in peace, and I will see you all.